This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. I love having tea early in the morning and going out into the fresh air of the morning uh, at that stage before the sun has really come up. It's light, but the sun hasn't quite come up fully. It's a marvelous feeling. This is the Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I think that one of the things that we feel about our lives these days is that we don't have enough time. So many people complain and complain sometimes quite vociferously that their life is just rushing by. And so I think uh, drinking tea with somebody else is one way of actually achieving that slowing down process. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Living in London was dreamy at times. Evening pints at our local pub, borough market on Saturday mornings where we would eat pork burgers with runny fried eggs on top. I'd bicycle every day to my job in Notting Hill, and I was surrounded by some of the best food in the world. But on the flip side, life was unbalanced. My husband James worked all the time, and when he wasn't working, he was exhausted. It was a struggle to cultivate our own home life within this rhythm. So when things got especially off kilter, we take the train to the Midlands to visit James's grandfather, Charles, whose daily rituals and routines were powerfully soothing exactly what we needed. This is how Charles's day would unfold. The clock chimed at six, and I knew any second I would hear Charles's feet padding down the carpeted hallway. He would wash up, then head to the kitchen to turn the kettle on. The table had already been set for breakfast the night before. A box of muesli, a teapot, cups and saucers, a pitcher for milk, three cereal bowls, cutlery, and a little toast rack with side plates. He had taken over kitchen duties when his wife, Derry, became too arthritic to cook. And within days, the kitchen was on a strict schedule. Breakfast at 6, instant coffee in the sitting room at 10, lunch at 11.30, tea at 2, sherry at 4, and dinner at 4.30. He was a military man. He worked in the air ministry during World War II, and his father was a vice admiral in the Royal Navy. But it's hard to know if it was military life that informed this schedule. It could have been his eternal optimism. He believed in lighting tomorrow with today. Why not set the table the night before? This was a gift he'd give himself, and he'd share it with others. His gifts weren't always delicious. Fish roe on toast was his fixed Tuesday lunch, and the wine he decant into a glass pitcher for dinner was so cheap it gave us headaches. We tried buying less headachey bottles for him, which he would graciously receive, then tuck away into his re-gift stash in the front closet. But James, also a man of order, was his grandson, and it takes a schedule guy to know on. So we created our own little routine. Every afternoon at 1 p.m. when Charles had a nap, we'd sneak up to the high street wine shop, buy a new bottle of red, pour out what was in the decanter, and refill it with our new bottle. This wine switch was our routine each and every time we visited. Some people would find this rigorous adherence to schedule off-putting. But when your life is hectic and untethered, a schedule can be soothing. Those little things like tea at 6 a.m. or the Marks & Spencer's luxury brand instant coffee at 10, 
They pulled us together, connected us, and let us know everything was going to be okay. Today on The Food Podcast, we talk with Alexander McCall-Smith, former law professor, now author of countless novels, including the number one ladies detective agency series. We talk about how he uses food, namely tea, in his writing to set a mood, to illustrate a character, and to press pause on a moment. There's also a full tutorial on how to make the perfect cup of tea, Alexander McCall-Smith style. Yes, it's all about the beauty of ritual, routine, and tea with a splash of cold milk. Today on The Food Podcast. Alexander McCall-Smith, or Sandy as he's called, says he cries at weddings and graduations. I too am a mess at events like these, but I already knew he had this tender heart, even before we spoke over Skype from his home in Edinburgh. Because I've read his fictional series, The Number One Ladies Detective Agency, and tenderness is at the heart of each of his novels. Tenderness and tea. If you haven't read the series, here's a taste from the first page of the first book in the series. Mabra Matswe had a detective agency in Africa at the foot of Kale Hill. These were its three assets, a tiny white van, two desks, two chairs, a telephone, and an old typewriter. There was a teapot in which Ma Ramatswe, the only lady private detective in Botswana, brewed red bush tea and three mugs, one for herself, one for her secretary, and one for the client. What else does a detective agency really need? Together, Ma Ramatswe and her secretary, who becomes her assistant detective, solve cases under the hot Botswana sun, pausing at regular intervals to have a cup of tea. Ma Ramatswe drinks rooibos or red bush tea, while Mama Kutsi prefers traditional tea. Ma Ramatswe has a big, strong heart full of kindness and dignity, and this heart is illustrated through her dealings with the characters she comes across throughout each and every book. Now that's the simple version. There are 18 books in the series. A 19th is on its way. But what I want you to know is that the books resonate hope. Something that comes, I think, when a person can see the good in another person or in a situation. So I started our conversation by asking Sandy about his tears at weddings, the emotional happy kind, the kind filled with hope. Oh, yes. Oh, I cry. And weddings. In fact, I think there's no harm in crying. And sometimes also when when I see an example of uh, egregious kindness, that can moisten the, uh, the eyes a bit. I asked him to share an act of egregious kindness that has recently moistened his eyes. It's a treat to have a window into the real life of Alexander McCall Smith, not his fictional world. There may, may be a case for noting them down as you see them and then keeping them as, as memories there to remind one of human kindness. Uh, there was actually, interestingly enough, there was something in the, in the newspapers where somebody was at a petrol filling station and a first aider in uniform, somebody who did first aid as a sort of public service, came to fill up uh, her car with petrol. 
and the person noticed that another motorist who was paying his bill at the cashier actually paid for this first aid as petrol as a gesture. Isn't that nice? Something like that. So I think there are all sorts of acts of kindness which are performed by people. And it's, uh, it's wonderful when, um, when you witness them. Like the time a stranger pushed me through the turnstiles with him in the packed London underground when my travel card wouldn't work. Or when my friend brought a canister of gas to a person stranded on the side of the road. Or how about the time my midwife made me tea and toast after I gave birth to my first son? Nothing has ever tasted so good. It was a moist eye moment. When you boil it down, these examples are all examples of putting people at ease. That is Sandy's genius. He even put me at ease at the beginning of our conversation. How about we just have a casual chat, Lindsay? He said. Yes, please. I went to listen to Sandy speak a few months ago in Halifax. It's been reported that he spoke to a room full of older women, which was true. He opened his talk with a few of his favorite first lines from books. I was so taken by his humor that night and his warmth that I too went home and reread the opening lines of my favorite books. Then I moved on to my favorite cookbooks. I shared a few lines with Sandy. The icy prickle across your face as you walk out into the freezing air. That's from Nigel Slater's The Christmas Chronicles. And I think it's not just an opening line, it's borderline haiku. Or how about the perfectly simple line from Julia Tertian's book, Small Victories? It began with celery. I asked Sandy if he were to write a cookbook, what would his first line be? Well, uh, there, there, there is that Roman one, isn't there, which was first catch your peacock or whatever it is. Some really uh, hilarious. Um, so something um, surprising or you could stress that this was going to be simple and straightforward. Maybe the first line would be, you don't need Himalayan sea salt, full stop. In fact, one might modify the first line to read, relax, you don't need Himalayan sea salt. I love the word relax, a simple verb that puts the cook at ease. He's making friends with his reader instantly. That's an act of kindness, if you ask me. It's Sandy's way. My attention with this conversation was to discuss his use of tea in his novels. It was not meant to just be about egregious acts of kindness, but as we spoke, I realized that the act of serving tea to another, as Ma Ramatswe does, as my midwife did, as Sandy explains he does so often, is a lovely act of kindness in itself. And a ritual. Ritual and kindness are somehow melded together. It's difficult to unpack it all, in Sandy's case, because tea has been such a big part of his life since he was a boy. So I ask him to start at the beginning of his tea memories. As a boy, I, I lived in Bulawayo in what is now Zimbabwe, fairly close to the border uh, with Botswana, uh, which obviously was to play a major part in my subsequent career. We drank a lot of tea, uh, and I think a lot of tea is still drunk in those latitudes. We had tea every morning, first thing, uh, which would be about half past five. We tended to get up rather early at dawn, really. And tea was served on a large circular brass 
tray, an Indian tray. I remember that the the milk jar uh, jug always had uh, those sort of lacy beaded anti fly uh, devices, so that flies couldn't get into the milk. The tea we drank, this tea we drank a couple of cups, two cups, I should imagine, of that tea. Uh, as a boy, I'm sorry to say, I did use sugar in my tea. I did put sugar in my tea, and I think I probably liked it terribly sweet. Um, two or three teaspoons, uh, which of course now were, I just couldn't face uh, sweetened tea or coffee at all. I, I think I'd choke if I had tea that sweet. We would have that tea, and it was refreshing. Then there'd be more tea at mid-morning. In fact, you'd have tea with breakfast, so probably just... Uh, shortly afterwards, there'd be further tea served at breakfast. Then there would be tea mid-morning, uh, and then you'd have tea after lunch, and then you'd have the mid-afternoon tea, and then you'd have tea in the evening after dinner. We didn't drink coffee in those days. Tea would, would have been served five or six times a, a day. The tea, uh, tea we tended to have on the veranda, so on the porch really, and uh, sometimes one would have tea outside. If you're sitting in the garden, you have tea outside. Uh, so tea was a, a very important part of life. And that, of course, would have been the case in many parts of the world with that sort of tradition. It was just taken as a standard thing. And if anybody came to see you, they got tea in the same way as, of course, if anybody comes to see us in Edinburgh, they, they get tea. This is all a very British habit, the, the drinking of tea with that regularity. And indeed, in Britain, there's an additional aspect to it, which is if there's any crisis, if there's some great disaster, people's immediate response is, well, I'll put the kettle on. It's as if making tea will somehow calm people down or resolve the crisis that's brewing, which is an interesting, uh, interesting bit of British psychology. I suppose that part of that is that there are certain rituals associated with tea, the making of tea, the boiling of the kettle, the putting the tea into the pot, and then the pouring and the social aspect to it, you're taking tea with somebody. So that's very important. Uh, it's rather like a tea ceremony in Chinese culture. I remember years ago going to a tea ceremony in Singapore, and that was fascinating because it involved so many different steps and so many rituals. Uh, rituals bind people together. Uh, rituals serve a very important social purpose, and uh, so rituals associated with tea are, are, are doing that. Rituals do bind us together, regardless of beverage or faith. They are something we can share. But first things first. I want to know how Sandy himself makes his tea. I once read that he and his wife travel with loose-leaf tea and a teapot in their suitcase. In the event that they find themselves in a hotel room with only a drip coffee maker to work with. I'm so intrigued, because despite my career in the food world, I've never been all that comfortable making tea or coffee let alone in a hotel room. So I ask him to break it down for me, step by step. How can I be kind to another, to soothe them, if I'm fretting about whether the tea is too weak or too cold or too strong? What I would recommend is that you warm the teapot first. That's said to be very important, and that's something which um, I've always done. You warm your teapot, you put in the tea leaves, you certainly go for leaf tea. I know that there are those who say that tea bags are just as good, but uh, I think I would prefer leaf tea, and leaf tea has a much better taste. Put in your 
leaf tea, then add the water, and then you let it stand according to taste. If you like strong tea, obviously you let it stand uh, longer. If you like weak tea, as I do, then you pour it out quite quickly. You then get into this very, very tricky area of whether you put any milk in your tea. Now, the world is divided on that score. There's a great San Andreas fault between those who say that tea shouldn't have milk added and those who say that you can add milk. Uh, I'm of the school that likes to put a bit of milk into tea uh, and then you drink it. It's fairly straightforward. Don't let it get too cold because the taste does change if it gets too cold. So it's fairly straightforward business. However, there are other issues in the milk department. And again, there's a major division in society between those who say you put the milk in first and those who say you put the milk in after you pour the tea into the cup. That's a big issue. The, the people who say you add the milk afterwards say that that doesn't scald the milk in the same way as if you put the milk in first and pour the tea on top of it. There we're also into the area of etiquette. And I gather that the world is divided on that issue as well as to whether it's more polite to put your milk in first or put your milk in later. Of course, that doesn't matter one little bit. But of course, etiquette issues people get quite exercised over. So that's the making of tea. And then you, you drink it with people and uh, you make polite conversation. When you're drinking tea, you must always be polite to people. You don't say anything disturbing or, uh, or discourteous to them. That goes with coffee. Coffee is a very good drink. If you want to be rude to people, then coffee is what you should be drinking. Have you ever read Stig Larsson's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Sandy's coffee theory rings true in this book and the books that follow in the series. The main character, Mikael Blankfist, is a Swedish investigative journalist who is searching for a missing woman. He drinks strong black coffee constantly, morning, noon, and even in the middle of the night, especially when the details of the search are so terrorizing that he can't sleep. Coffee is always his answer. Scandinavians do drink more coffee than anyone else in the world. Coffee often is included with lunch in most restaurants, and two coffee breaks are mandatory in the workplace. Perhaps it's their latitude with those long, dark winter nights that make coffee the drink of choice. Maybe it's that famous coffee at Ikea. Who knows? But I like Sandy's opinion that coffee breeds darker conversations. He's right. When I drink too much, I'm always slightly on edge. While tea, it will fuel a builder, soothe a broken heart, or connect old friends. It can be sipped, perched on the edge of a city, little finger outstretched, or gulped down on the brightest, sunniest days. Tea is strangely refreshing. I first discovered Sandy's writing and the Number One Ladies Detective Agency series in particular during those early days in London when James was working through the evening and I was on my own. The books were a metaphor for tea for me. They made me less lonely. I've noticed I don't reach for them when all is well with the world. I escape to them when things are tough. The writing isn't saccharine. All the reality of sub-Saharan Africa is woven in, but through it, there's hope. I've read that the tea scenes that he writes, the grounding moments of his work, were a tool Sandy would use to slow a moment down or to transition a scene. 
I asked him if this was the whole truth. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I suppose I joked in the past that a tea scene was always a good way of taking the story along if you weren't quite sure where it was going to go. But uh, on a serious note, yes, I think the tea scenes where Mara Matsui and Mama Kutsi are in their office and they're, they're drinking a cup of tea provide a very nice, I suppose, vehicle for them to exchange ideas about what's been going on during the day, what their plans are, what the issues are. It also slows up time a bit. I think that one of the things that we feel about our lives these days is that we don't have enough time. So many people complain and complain sometimes quite vociferously that their life is just rushing by. And of course, we all know that feeling and that happens to all of us. We feel if only we could stop things or slow things down a bit and get a bit of space, a bit of time to sit and think or do the things that we like. And so I think uh, drinking tea with somebody else is one way of actually achieving that slowing down process. And when Mara Matsui and Mara Kutsi are drinking their tea in their office, it's a nice relaxed atmosphere. And I think people respond rather well to that. Occasionally we have tea issues in those books because Mama Rumatsui is very keen on redbush tea and Mama Kutsi is keen on traditional tea. So there can be differences there, there can be problems associated with that, but generally speaking, it provides them with a little opportunity to talk and reflect. And uh, for me as a novelist, uh, that's marvellous to be able to write that sort of scene. There is also a meditative side to drinking tea. When you're not in service mode, just sipping all alone. I recently heard an interview with Scottish clinical hypnotherapist Andrew Johnson, the voice behind the meditation app Holistrio. He was talking with Sarah Tasker on her podcast, Hashtag Authentic, explaining that insomnia is on the rise because the brain is so overstimulated by screens and devices all day long that it doesn't have time to stop and reflect. So instead, it solves the problems of the day through the night when all is finally quiet, when we're supposed to be sleeping. Ma Ramatswe has this all figured out. She often begins her day sipping her red bush tea in her garden, taking in the plants and the expansive sky. No cell phone in sight. She does like to do that, and indeed that's something which I very much like to do when I'm in Africa. I go to Botswana every year, and uh, I love having tea early in the morning and going out into the fresh air of the morning uh, at that stage before the sun has really come up. It's light, but the sun hasn't quite come up fully. It's a marvellous feeling. The world is so new and fresh. You hear the insects, the birds. It's just a marvellous time. And sometimes you might smell the smoke of a wood fire somewhere in the distance. These are very evocative experiences. And having a cup of tea uh, in those conditions is just perfect. And certainly I do that when I go each year to the Okavanga Delta, uh, where they hold safaris for readers of books from all over the world. Uh, I go on those in the lodge that you, you stay in little lodges in these camps, safari camps, tented lodge. There's a knock at the door at um, about quarter to six, and your guide has prepared tea for you, and it's a lovely way to start the day. There's a W.H. Auden quote connecting our daydreams to how we eat. I shared it with Sandy because Auden, I have read, is one of his major literary enthusiasms. It reads like this. 
A daydream is a meal in which images are eaten. Some of us are gourmets and some are gourmands. And a good many take their images pre-cooked out of a can and swallow them down whole, absent-mindedly, and with little relish. I asked Sandy what his daydreams are made of. Are they gourmet, enjoyed slowly, or swallowed down whole? Well, I don't know. Um, I suppose my thoughts wander as everybody's thoughts wander. I sometimes engage in imaginary conversations uh, while I'm walking along, for example. I will sometimes think about what I uh, might say to somebody I know, a conversation that might take place uh, when, for example, uh, you've been the victim of, of a slight of some sort or treated unfairly or discourteously. You will spend the next couple of hours thinking about what you should have said. Sometimes I think if I'm watching something which requires a lot of skill, such as a rugby match or a football match, I might think, what would it be like if I were in that competition? So if I watch Wimbledon, I sometimes imagine myself going on to centre court and suddenly discovering a tremendous talent for tennis and thinking how impressed my friends would be. So I think some of my, my, my daydreams are concerned about impressing my friends. I'd say he jostles those daydreams around, seasons them with a touch of magic and wonder, then savors them with tea, strawberries and cream, Wimbledon food. And speaking of daydreams, the way Sandy begins his day in Edinburgh is a bit of a daydream in the Wallace and Gromit sense of the word. Although he says it's rare for any of his fictional characters to engage in technology, Mauro Matsue is never seen with a mobile phone, and Mama Kutsi has always used a typewriter, and for a long time, one that was missing two important keys. But Sandy himself has embraced technology to some degree in a more inventive, quirky kind of way. I start the day, believe it or not, with a cup of tea, as does my wife. And my wife has something called a teasemate, which is one of these machines uh, that sits beside the bed. And it's primed uh, before you go to sleep. You prime it, you put water in it, and you put the tea leaves in it. And, and uh, it has an alarm clock mechanism. And at a certain hour, it starts to wheeze and hiccup. And, and it boils the water and makes tea. It, the, the boiling water then goes through a pipe into the teapot, which is part of the mechanism. And so you've got a freshly made pot of tea as your alarm rings to wake you up. It's a wonderful invention. It's all ringing a bell. Mr. Bean has a tease made, which he uses to wake himself up in one of his skits. But he plums it also to spray water on his feet so he's guaranteed to wake up. We all need one of these. Once Sandy's had his tea and worked on whatever novel he's working on, he says his ideal day would be lunch with friends, followed by dinner with more friends. Yes, I love the idea of that. I really enjoy meeting friends for lunch. I'll usually meet uh, either one or possibly two, but often just one friend. So I've got a number of friends uh, whom I phone up uh, very short notice and say, you free for lunch, let's meet for lunch. That's the most enjoyable process. It's not the meal itself that one's going for, it's going for the, the company and for the chat that one has over, over the meal. Okay, pause for thought. Maybe this is his way of telling me that it doesn't matter exactly how you make tea. It's not the tea itself that's important, but the ritual of gathering and sharing with friends that's valuable. 
But like polite tea conversation, Sandy has thoughts on what should and shouldn't be discussed over meals with friends. Uh, I think one has to be careful about that. You have to judge your friend because I think what you have to be careful about is changing the atmosphere by raising a subject that you know that you might disagree on. So certain key subjects are avoided because they can be very divisive and politics can be extremely divisive. Uh, I think that we're living in an age where our politics in many countries have become quite toxic in a way and have certainly become very polarized. Uh, And I gather that there are families which have been split by disagreement over some of the key political issues of the day, which is a great, great pity. And so generally speaking, I think you have to be careful to avoid um, politics unless, unless you know the person well, unless you know that you know what their views are. If somebody has the same views as you do, then obviously that's, there's no real danger. But if people differ substantially on a political matter, I, you might be touching raw nerves. And yet you don't want the conversation to be banal. You don't want it to be so anodyne that it doesn't really deal with anything of interest. So I would have thought that you could deal with serious subjects, but you might avoid the real areas of of division and disagreement. So, for example, I had lunch with an old friend today, and we, we didn't actually really talk about politics. We talked about religion. We talked about religious ritual. I mentioned that in Sri Lanka, I been in a Hindu temple and saw this very moving ceremony being performed in the Hindu temple and and I was made to feel very welcome. The Hindu priest came up and and put a little coloured dab on my on my forehead and a little bit of ash on my forehead. And I t- talked about how how moving religious rituals can be even if one doesn't necessarily subscribe to the theology behind them as in all rituals in life, and that takes us back to tea, and that drinking tea with other people is ritualistic. And rituals, I think, are a very important way of affirming value and affirming what one feels about the world and saying that I appreciate the world, I appreciate the fact, for example, that you and I can sit down for dinner and share a meal. Uh, So rituals associated with having a meal with somebody Uh, are all directed to that affirmation. And I think it's very important that we should be able to say, this is what we value in this life. This is something in the world that we very much appreciate that we value. His value is woven into his writing, his love for Africa, for honesty, for friends and for the thirst-quenching power of tea on a hot afternoon. In the Number One Ladies Detective series, Mr. J.L.B. Matakoni begins as Ma Romatsue's mechanic, but eventually becomes her husband. Here's a scene from the first book when he's fixing Ma's beloved little white van and hoping to win her over. Mr. J.L.B. Matakoni moved backwards and forwards between his truck and the van, Two cups of tea were taken out, and then a third, as it was a hot afternoon. Then Ma Ramatswe went into her kitchen to put vegetables into a pot and water the plants that stood on the back windowsill. Dusk was approaching, and the sky was streaked with gold. This was her favorite time of the day, when the birds went dipping and swooping through the air, and the insects of the night started to shriek. 
In this gentle light, the cattle would be walking home, and the fires outside the huts would be crackling and glowing for the evening's cooking. My writer friend Maggie McKellar says everyone needs a comfort read, especially when the close world feels dangerous. Sandy's writing is like an escape hatch, she says, and somehow slipping into this created world allows you a moment of respite. I asked Sandy if he has an escape hatch. Where does he find respite? I would often read poetry. I'm very keen on the works of W.H. Auden. He's one of my major literary enthusiasms. I would read poetry. I would also, I really enjoy a good classic novel. I'm reading uh, Trollope at the moment, Barchester Chronicles, which I'm very much enjoying. And I also listen to Trollope on, uh, in audiobook uh, format. I, I might read Homer, for instance. I recently sat down and read The Odyssey from cover to cover. I, I dipped into it in the past. I read excerpts, but I never actually sat down and read Homer's Odyssey all the way through. It's absolutely lovely, absolutely extraordinary, powerful stuff. I'm halfway through the Iliad the, uh, at present, the same translation, very poetic translation. So that would be a re relaxation. Listening to music is a good way of unwinding. Uh, I have certain uh, playlists that I'll listen to, which I find always very soothing. Particularly if I want to be soothed, I'll listen to that wonderful trio from Mozart's Cosi uh, Fantuti, the uh, Suave Seal Vento, which is this wonderful trio, as I said, uh, which talks about people going off on a journey. And it's a marvelous, the words are so marvelous, beautiful, calming words. May the, the, the breeze that takes you off on your journey be a gentle one. May all your desires be met. It's just absolutely lovely. And what a lovely message to give to somebody who's embarking on a journey. So I'll listen to music of that sort, and I'll be much comforted by that. If it comes to recreations, then I'm a very keen uh, sailor. I like um, boating. And so I have a boat, and I will go off sailing on a boat. Or even if you don't get very far in a boat, there's nothing like as the one of the characters in uh, Kenneth Graham's wonderful Wind in the Willows says, there's nothing as good as just messing about in boats. Sandy told me he'd be leaving the next day for the Caribbean. He and his wife and a few friends had chartered a catamaran and would be sailing from Martinique towards St. Lucia. I wondered aloud if there would be red bush tea on board. Uh, my wife's taking the teapot. I saw her packing it. So we do out to be taking my special red bush tea, which Mara Motsley would approve of. And I've got a wonderful naval cap. I've got a, a splendid, ridiculous-looking naval officer's white cap with lots of gold braid and anchors on it. Well, we were talking about daydreams and fantasies. What's wrong with fantasizing that you're a proper sailor? May the breeze that takes you off on your journey be a gentle one. And may all your desires be met. I can't thank Alexander McCall Smith enough. What a joy it was to talk to him. All of his work can be found at alexandermccallsmith.com. And all the links to what we discuss can be found in the show notes at lindsaycameronwilson.ca forward slash the food podcast. And while you're there, please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news and share backstories from the episodes. And sometimes there's a recipe in there as well. 
You can find me on Instagram at The Food Podcast or at Lindsay Cameron Wilson. And please tell me how you like your tea, milk first or second. As always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I am Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 